1: Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today, we've got a two-part show scheduled for you. The first part is a 45-minute conversation that I recorded with Jovan Bua of The Athletic, our fearless stalwart Clippers writer, discussing where this thing went wrong for the Clippers over the course of the last few days. Then we're going to move to a conversation with Desmond Bain, a potential first-round pick out of TCU, going to kind of discuss his trajectory to where he is now gone from being a maybe draftable prospect entering the season to someone that very much is in the mix for teams in the 20 to 30 range uh, on draft night, which is now scheduled for November 18th. Before we get there, though, I've just got to tell you about the deal that is happening at The Athletic. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets the athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, that's G A M E T H E O R Y, you can receive an all access subscription for just $1 a month. Sports are back and you won't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite teams. So go to theathletic.com slash game theory, receive an all access subscription for just $1 a month. We hope to see you there. Now, let's get to the podcast. Yo, Vaughn, what's going on, man?
2: How's it going? I'm uh, running on four hours of sleep after uh, maybe the the worst playoff collapse in NBA history.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm running on. I got six at least last night which was good cuz i wrote that big like breakdown of uh, the nuggets and how they just like destroyed the clippers pick and roll defense and i'm glad that i got the 6 like i feel like that's what i needed but yours yours is a little bit more uh <laughs> l- required a bit more tact than mine did i think is the way to put it so i understand you needing to take a couple more hours than i did necessarily <laughs>
2: Oh, that, that that piece was great, by the way.
1: Thank you. Uh, let's just, I mean, where do you want to start with this? Obviously, like I said in the intro, we're going to talk about the Clippers here. We're going to talk about uh, how the Nuggets just essentially broke them over the course of three mm-hmm. straight games. Uh, three straight awful comebacks, uh, at least this one. I think it only got out to nine in game seven with the Clippers lead, right? Yeah, only got out to nine. I believe that that was what about you know two thirds. Oh, the, uh, the, you, second you said the
2: the the Clippers' big the Clippers' biggest lead was twelve in this game. So they actually 12. blew they blew they blew a third consecutive double digit lead.
1: Great, that's Uh-oh. what you like to see.
2: Yes, um, uh, I, go, ahead.
1: go ahead. Where do you want to start?
2: I, I was going to say I I had a a line in my story that I, I think just kind of it's what I've been thinking about was that until the bitter end, this team teased us and, you know, on paper, they were the, you know, you, you had this great identity from last season, this deep supporting cast, this championship coaching staff, you add Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, two of, at that time, the you know top 10 players in the league, you have Kawhi coming off the Raptors run, you have PG coming off of uh, top three finishes and MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. And rightfully so, this team was the championship favorite. You know, in, in Vegas, with NBA pundits, with, with analytics across the board, most people had them pegged as best team or at worst a top three team.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you a quick little anecdote on that. I think I've told this story with Robbie Calland on the podcast before, but uh, the night that Kawhi and Paul George ended up on the Clippers Robbie and a couple of friends Brad Roland Martin Rickman uh, we were in Vegas for summer league and we were at the Westgate Sportsbook because I wanted to be watching Australian football and <laughs> that deal goes down and they run out and get their laptops they have to write obviously I don't really have to write just because that's not Like, you know, I can write in those circumstances. I don't necessarily have to write in those circumstances. And I was watching Australian football. So I wanted to watch Essendon. And we were, like, getting ready to, like, run up to the sports book to see what they were going to put the Clippers at in terms of winning the title. We were basically just, like, ready to, like, bang down the sports book, like, essentially doors, I guess. They're not really doors but just like begging to be able to bet on the Clippers. If it was anything over like three or four to one, I think it settled in early at like three and a half to one, if I remember correctly. And unfortunately we couldn't do that. The sports book closed like 20 minutes before that trade went down. But I think it speaks to the attitude that permeated the NBA about this Clippers team. And I think it speaks to the, Attitude that permeated the Clippers themselves about this team because I think they saw themselves as the favorites, even as the Lakers throughout the course of the season kind of surpassed them.
2: And but I think the the, the kind of frustrating part if if you're the Clippers or or someone who who did believe in that they were the number two offense. They were the, the number five defense. Um, you know, they, they did have the fourth best record in the league. They, you know, were the two seed out West. Um, you know, I, I think if you're looking at the season, I mean, maybe you would have expected them to be the one seed or, or maybe you would have expected them to have a, a top three defense. But for the most part, like, they hit the benchmarks that you kind of expected them to hit and did so with Kawhi Leonard, you know, having the injury management. They, they, they had... Unforeseen injuries of, you know, Paul George had his, his shoulder surgeries, then suffered a, a hamstring injury, you know, midway through the year. Landry Shamett missed time. Pat Beverly missed time. Jermichael Green missed time. Like they, they, they made the, the Marcus Morris trade. Like they had all these variables and, and kind of various forms of adversity that they did overcome with, with their talent and, and just kind of with, with their two way ability. And, and even till the bitter end, like again, they had a 3 1 lead they were in prime position to win game five. They were in prime position to win game six and they were actually in game seven really until the last eight or nine minutes. So, I mean, it's just the manner in which they collapsed the, the devastating fashion of having the three, one series lead and losing of of having those second half leads and losing. um, It just really was like, this team was almost waiting to unravel at the seams and, you know, the chemistry issues were always there and they might've been patched over at times, but they were never fully resolved. And you saw Lou, PG and Kawhi all mention chemistry in their post-game press conferences. Um, you know, the, the, the team talking about not having enough time together, uh, you know, whether that was practicing or or just the on-court reps with, with different guys in and out of the bubble. Um, you even heard the, the conditioning excuse that they had, but it was just this was like the best and the worst of the Clippers. You saw the potential with the 3-1 series lead. You saw the potential with big second half leads. And then you saw the demise with with a you know lackadaisical effort at times with an inability, inability to execute basic things like pick and roll defense, rotations, um, running an offense. Like th- this was the good and the bad and ultimately the ugly of the Clippers all in one series. And ultimately – Um, You know, this is now one of the worst, if not arguably the worst, playoff collapse in NBA history.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the chemistry stuff because you and Sam Amick and, you know, a few other people at our site throughout the course of the year, you've written about this. This is not new. Uh, The Clippers denied it throughout the course of the year. But you guys nailed this. Like, you had it and hit it right on the head. Uh, This team didn't get enough reps in, in the regular season to where they had enough continuity to make it work at the end of games. They didn't have enough reps to frankly, really even experiment on different lineups that could have worked. Like for me, like I wanted them to play throughout the course of that series, a Beverly Kawhi, Paul George, Jamichael Green, Marcus Morris. Kind of lineup, and they never got a chance to do that. They never got a chance to play any of you know Pat Beverly, Kawhi, Paul George, Marcus Morris, and Jamichael Green together. Just because that that's not that's not the way that Doc chose to allocate their rotations. though that five some played six minutes together in this Denver series. And I think that that was, you know, part of me wants to say it's a mistake, but like if you don't get a chance to work through some of these different potential lineups throughout the course of the season, you're not going to feel as comfortable utilizing them later in the season. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. And, and I think one of the, the weird things and and you touched on it in in your piece on the nuggets, I try to touch on it as well with my piece off of game seven um, you know, Doc's inability to adjust all season, I think, was an issue, particularly in this series. But it was just kind of weird because all year, you know, he he stuck with the guys he trusted. Um, and, you know, Lou and Trez were six man of the year candidates. Um, but in in the regular season, Doc stuck with his two unit platoon. You had the starting group. You had the bench unit. They rarely played together, um, you know, w- with the exception of closing time when Lou and Trez w- would close with Kawhi PG and a-, a token starter, be it Pat Beverly, Marcus Morris, whoever. Um, but y- you kind of saw Doc actually experiment in the seeding games and go with lineups are Michael Green and Marcus Morris at the five, play Evita Zubats more minutes um, and-, and just kind of get funky with the rotation in ways he hadn't consistently done in the regular season. And part of that was because they were shorthanded, you know, Lou Williams missed time in the bubble, Uh, Montrezl Harrell missed time in the bubble. Um, And honestly, like the Clippers didn't really miss much of a beat without those two, Um, you know, and, and obviously they missed their offense at times, but defensively they were so disastrous this season that it almost kind of negated it. And you could argue different guys like Landry Shamit, or, or Zubots or Jermichael Green stepped up and, and actually scored more, you know, shot well in, in the case of Jermichael and Landry and, and played better defense. And uh, I think ultimately I, it was telling to me that in game seven, the biggest game of the Clippers season, Montrose Harrell, after having not only a disastrous, um, you know, Denver series, but just a, a horrific Dallas series as well, plays – 26 minutes, scores 20 meaningless points, you know, racking some of them up in garbage time. And Evita Zubats, who played, you know, was arguably the third best clipper in the bubble behind Kawhi and PG. I mean, you'd probably say it was him or Marcus Morris, uh, you know, had a, had a really good and impressive Dallas series, was, was up and down against Denver, but was their best defensive matchup against Nikola Jokic. Uh, only plays 14 minutes, gets in foul trouble with three first half fouls, and just basically doesn't play much in the second half. I I thought that was telling, that Doc again reverting to his regular season bad habits of playing Trez when when the team, you know, all the indicators where this team could not defend at a league average level with Montrezl Harrell on the floor, Uh, and, you know, to kind of go down that way and then try to, you know, double Jokic and and have Trez as the helper when he's been late on help rotations all season, like, I I just – I thought it was mistake after mistake. And uh, again, part of that is on Kawhi, part of that's on PG. Those guys shot 10 to 38. They they only scored 24 points. Um, You know, the role players are up and down all all postseason. But Doc really going out that way just kind of summarized all of the issues this team had from an adjustment perspective of really, in my opinion, not having a good read on the personnel, not having a good read on strengths and weaknesses, uh, you know, uh, how to counter modern NBA offenses. Uh, because the answer was not Montrezl Harrell at the five. Uh, it, it was Jermichael Green and Marcus Morris. If you wanted to downsize, it was Avita Zubots if you wanted some size and rim protection, but it, it wasn't Trez. And, and I think his playoff performance really showed that. And, and for Doc to go out that way, I, I thought it was just kind of the perfect chef's kiss on, uh, you know, the Clippers collapse.
1: Yeah, you know, the Clippers in this series, they were 11.7 points per 100 possessions worse with Montrezl Harrell on the court than the Denver Nuggets uh of their nine regular rotation guys in this series. Uh the Clippers no, no one had no one was worse than -3.8 other than Montrez Harrell uh against the Nuggets. Harrell was by far the biggest indicator of struggling lineups in this series. It showed in the tape, it showed in the numbers, and still it just kind of went down the way that Doc decided to play him uh, as much as he did. And that was kind of baffling to me as well. I wrote about that in my thing for today. Um, You know, you mentioned Zubats. Like, I'll be honest, I, I don't think Zubats was particularly good against Denver. Like, I think that you can easily make a case that he was their best option against Nikola Jokic, but... At the end of the day, Jokic was still kind of toasting him, and they were still toasting him in pick and roll coverages because whenever Zubats is in, they have to play that drop coverage, and it's really hard to play drop against Jamal Murray in the way that he is hot right now. So, I'm I'm just like kind of, I think they should have went small. Like I said, like I think they should have gone with Jamal Green and Marcus Morris. I think they should have put Kawhi on Nikola Jokic. Enforced either to involve Nikola Jokic on Kawhi in these screening actions or taking Nikola Jokic out of the screening action because they want to avoid Kawhi. That's also a win for the Clippers in those circumstances. So, again, though, to get the most efficacy out of that idea, you can't have – you know, Lou was a little bit better defensively in the series. He wasn't great, but, like, he gave effort. He was engaged enough to where he wasn't a disaster. They still hunted him, but it wasn't like abject in the way that sometimes Lou can be defensively. I still yeah. would worry that they would have hunted him, but if they're hunting him, you know, in a one, two ball screen with Gary Harris in taking Jokic out of the play, that's still a win to me.
2: Well, and, and again, these were issues that plagued this team all season. I, I mean, you, you saw it, um, They had a stretch before the All-Star break and and right after the All-Star break where uh, they they played the Celtics and Sixers back to back on the road. And then they had that big Lakers game right before uh, COVID struck. And then there was the hiatus. And in in those three games against, you know, at the time, three contenders, we we didn't see Philly necessarily going out this way or or maybe some people did Um, those three teams relentlessly hunted Lou Trez at the end of games. Yep. And they all, you know, all three exposed them. Uh, the, the Clippers lost all three games. And Lou in particular, you know, Jason Tatum, uh, they, they tried to hide Lou on, on Marcus Smart. Jason Tatum relentlessly calling for ball screens from Marcus Smart to get the Lou switch or to have him show or, or hedge. And in those moments, you know, w- with that kind of separation, get by Lou, create an open look. Um, You know, same thing with, with LeBron. He, he he had that uh, several possessions to close that Lakers game where Lou either switched onto him or, or showed and, and couldn't recover in time. Avery Bradley gets an open three. KCP gets an open three. KCP gets a drive. It was just like, th- this was there the whole time. And I, I just don't see how the coaching staff never kind of fully acknowledged or adjusted to that. And to point in the Dallas series the Clippers actually did a lot of the things you said. You know, they, they did go smaller with Jermichael or Marcus. They did slot Kawhi, PG, or Marcus on Kristaps Porzingis, switching Zubots off of him. And you saw that at times in games five, six, and seven, where, where they put Trez or Zubats um, on a, a wing and kind of hid them in the corner. Uh, but you didn't see it consistently. And that was kind of a thing I, I didn't understand. Like, you, you mentioned the drop coverages. I like, you know, forget just Jamal Murray with Nikola Jokic almost shooting 50% on threes. I don't know how you could drop against him because, you know, even not letting, you know, let's say Kawhi or whoever gets around the screen can stick with Murray, doesn't let him shoot. Jokic has seven, eight feet of space at that point. And we saw, you know, how many threes did he make in this series? Must have literally been 10 or 12 that were just wide open because Zubats or Harrell dropped and, and weren't able to, Recover to him in time. So I just felt the Clippers' insistence in their pick and roll coverage, the insistence to not put a wing on Jokic and, and either switch the the Murray Jokic actions or just have someone who is better at recovering out to Jokic uh, on his pops. Like it, it was just kind of basic, simple stuff that they just never adjusted to. And really, it took till Game Seven until you saw them get creative with the heavy doubling of Jokic and, and zoning up the backside, and and that worked for a little bit until we started picking them apart. And then they stuck with it, and, and he continued to pick them apart. And it was like, you know, okay, you, you threw a look at him. He adjusted. Now you adjust to that. But, but they continued to double him. He continued to find cutters and shooters. And I, I just felt, again, the Clippers were a step slow in the Dallas series to adjust. They were a step slow in the Denver series to adjust. And while I, I, you know, I think you, you probably put more of the blame in Game 7 on Kawhi and PG just not having the energy and the legs, I do think the coaching staff deserves some credit for their inability to adjust.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned just like at the end of the day, they just didn't know what it it wasn't that they were trying to change coverages to confuse Jokic. Like there's a difference in changing coverages to confuse a player versus changing coverages because you don't know what the fuck the best option is. Like they just didn't know what the best option was. Like there was a point in the third quarter and I broke this down. They were blitzing. Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic ball screens. And it's just like, this is going to result in a short roll into a four on three advantage every time with the best passing center of all time. Like that's a terrible outcome for you. Like there's a play where Kawhi Leonard, Paul George and Michael Green, they do basically as much as they can. They do everything right. And it's Montrez Harrell coming off of a blitz. And he just like kind of stops playing and stops trying to recover and doesn't recover out to Paul Millsap for an open three. And it's just like, this team did not have enough two-way players. And that ultimately cost them. They did not feel confident with their two-way guys. They had Pat Beverly. They had Kawhi. They had Paul George. I think Jamichael's a good defender. I think Marcus Morris fights, at least. Is maybe the best way to put it, right? Like Marcus Morris will at least battle and won't give up. He makes some mistakes, but like I, I give him credit for not giving up on possessions, right? Like Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, uh, Landry Shammett's not a very good defender. Um, you know, like, Zubots is a limited defender, even though he's a very good rim protector. Like, they just didn't—Reggie Jackson's not a good defender. They just didn't have enough guys that they could trust at the end of games to go out and get stops outside of their trio of star perimeter players, uh, and that cost them to me. Like, in this series, it is totally reasonable to say, Denver just fucking outplayed them. Like oh, that for is sure, what happened. for sure. Like, d- this is not about the Clippers— being the Clippers giving this away, although to some extent they did, this is more about Denver outplaying them. And I think that that will result in some real soul searching this summer for the Clippers.
2: And I think to that point, um, something I noticed from looking over the numbers, looking at the play-by-play was even in these games, in games five and six and and game seven, at least the, the first half, a lot of the leads were a little fool's goldy because it was the, the, the Clippers, and, and they were like this all season. Like, they probably were the best team in the NBA at putting together one of those like devastating Warriors esque runs. Where you know, that was one of the hallmarks of that Warriors team was that they could just put a 20 to 2 run on you at, at any moment for, for them. It you know, often was that third quarter. Clippers actually struggled in the third quarter all season, but that's probably a topic for a different podcast. Uh, but the Clippers, you know, especially in those first halves, but even a little bit sometimes in the beginning of the third in this series, they'd go on these big runs. They'd go on a 15 to two run. They'd go on a 17 to four run and they would juice the lead up from, you know, three, four five points. That that's, when you get the 16 point lead. That's when you get the 19 point lead, but it was kind of like outside of that, like four minute stretch or, or six minute stretch. Denver did outplay them, right? Like, I mean, it it was often a very close game to start. If you look at the first and second quarters, most of them were close uh, with the exception of a couple games. And then the Clippers would just kind of have this run at some point in the second or third to to get that 15-point lead. But Denver would immediately respond and and cut it, you know, cut it to eight going to the fourth or cut it to six and, and then take over within the first few minutes of the fourth. So I think to your point about them outplaying them, That was kind of part of it too with the leads where the Clippers leads, it wasn't like they were necessarily leading by 15, 20 points for like 10, 15, 20 minutes of the game. It was they'd go on a quick run, which again, they're probably the best in the league at uh, like that 18 to two run to start the Dallas series. in in game one, uh, get a big lead. And then immediately Denver would respond and the Clippers would go into stagnation offensively turnovers, you know, poor defensive rotations, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm I'm with you. Like, I think people focused a lot on the Clippers collapsing, but to me it was more who outplayed who over the 48 minutes. And if you really looked at it, most of the time it was Denver was the better team for 30, 32, 34 minutes. The Clippers could just patch together these runs over 10, 12, 14 minutes that made them look better. But I I think overall in in terms of who outplayed who you, you have to give the credit to Denver.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I think you absolutely just have to give the credit to Denver for outplaying the Clippers. All right. This first advertisement is for something that is near and dear to my heart. It sure was nice seeing the teams back out on the gridiron over the weekend. Lucky for us, that was just week one. There is no better place to get in on all of the actions than DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. I've got to tell you guys, I think on Sunday I submitted something like 18 different lineups into their contests. Uh, I was all over it. I am an enormous fan of DraftKings, as you guys know, from having listened to the show over the years. Uh, DraftKings has millions of dollars in total prizes up for grabs. If you haven't tried it yet, head over to the App Store now because you don't want to miss it. You draft your lineup. You feel the sweat like never before. Every run, pass, catch, it means more with DraftKings. It's simple. You just pick your lineup. You stay under the salary cap. You see how your team stacks up against the competition. It's really fun. It's really just a great way to have something on the line while you're watching football on Sunday. Uh, They paid out billions of dollars to winners since 2012, so they know a thing or two about cold, hard cash. Download the DraftKings app now and use that code RUN. For a limited time, new users can get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes. Don't miss out on the Week 2 action. Enter code RUN to get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes with your first deposit. That's code RUN, only at DraftKings. Make it rain. There's a minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. This is obviously a Clippers-centric podcast here that we're recording right now. And I guess that my first question for you about where they go from here is i mean what what happens now like i think that i can't imagine them paying montrez harrell a lot of money can you
2: no uh i i think and this is speculation this isn't sourced or i'm not reporting anything here um i would be surprised if if montrez is back uh I, i think you saw In back-to-back series, I I do think, you know, had Trez not left the bubble um, and and had he maybe been at his regular season level, he obviously would have put up better offensive numbers and and been, you know, again, one of the best rolling and finishing bigs in the league. But defensively, on the glass, uh, in terms of, I I would even say, uh, kind of some of the, the offensive decisions he makes in terms of, you know, attacking a converging paint and, and not kicking the ball out. Um, you know, some of the decisions he makes of offensive rebounds. Like, I, I do think the Clippers could go in a, a better direction in terms of fit. Um, you know, it's, it's going to have to be someone cheaper than him. And it's going to have to maybe be a vet you know vet men guy or maybe a you know use part of your your taxpayer mid level or, or your mid level. But um, you know, I, I do think some of the stuff with trez was you know he, he did put up 18 points a night and he he screamed a lot and he he dunked and and he provided energy but when it came to crunch time when it came to playing the elite teams if you actually look at his numbers um you know take away garbage time and take away those games against atlanta and, and charlotte and the knicks and, and different teams and like his numbers against the elite teams weren't that good this season yep. so I, I do think if you're the clippers with the price tag he's probably going to want, you know, I would say somewhere between 15, 18 million. I I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't don't think he gets that. And I don't think the Clippers would give him that if that's what he was asking for. So um, even if he gets, let's say eight, 10, 12 million annually, I don't know if the Clippers give that because I think, you know, to me it was clear in the regular season, but you know, the postseason crystallized it for me. like, I think Avito Zubats is just straight up a better player than Montrezl Harrell. Um, and on a $7 million deal, uh, you know, our John Hollinger at The Athletic wrote about it uh, a few months ago. Like, he he ranked Zubats as the, the, the best value deal uh, of last offseason. And, you know, maybe we can quibble with that a little bit. But, like, at $7 million a year for the, the defense and rebounding and screening get from him, um, you know, I think he's a, he's elite in in all. Uh, you know, you said he's a limited defender, and I agree. I think as a rim protector, he's elite. Really good offensive and defensive rebounder. Really good screener. Um, and and improved a lot as a roller and finisher. I think in those regards, like at seven million dollars, that's steal. And even if he is just your placeholder center, twenty to twenty five minutes a night, um, I think you can probably go in a better direction off the bench and not have someone as kind of offensive heavy as Trez. So. I, I expect him not to be back next season. I would be very surprised. I think if he is back, it's something like eight ten million. 10 million. That's a bargain for the Clippers, but I, I would be surprised if he's back.
1: Yeah. No, when I say that, I don't think Zubat's played particularly well in the series. Like that's not to say that he's not an incredible bargain and like, you know, him making 7 million and him making, I think it's 21 million over the course of the next three years. Like, yeah, that is, it's an incredible deal and he still has a role to play for, like you said, 20 to 25 minutes a night, but you can't close with him. Like you can't put him on the court with the way that, you know, most teams really like to space it out and try to create perimeter shots and use ball screens late in games, right? Like he, he's going to get hit, but that's not to say he's not valuable. Like it's still a useful piece to have on your team. The The two other questions for me are, a, what happens with Jamichael Green, who is a player option for $5 million. B, what happens with Marcus Morris, they decide to only pay one of those two, which I would understand if that was the case. I think I would default to Jamichael because I think the price tag will be cheaper. And I think he provides a bit more of what this team specifically needs. But I'd be willing to hear a case otherwise if you're willing to make one.
2: I, I, I'm with you. I, I, I think, you know, I guess my kind of vision for the offseason is you, you try to resign Marcus at a reasonable price. The most they can pay him is up to 18 million. Um, I, I don't think they would pay that much. I, I don't think he's going to command that much. Um, you know, I, I I see him more in that like 12, 12 to 14 million range. Um, and I don't, even I don't know. know. Maybe, maybe that's that too high. That's maybe much. they move on from that price point.
1: Yeah, like, yeah, no, I there mean, that, are so that, that's few fair. teams um, this summer that have real cap space. And the teams that have cap space this summer are likely not in the market for, like, a Marcus Morris type of veteran. Uh, I think he's probably a mid-level exception guy all the way.
2: Okay, then, you know, th- that's fair. And if, if you say that, um, you know, I, I was actually surprised last offseason, there wasn't as much interest in Jermichael Green. Um, You know, I I had reported on, you know, Denver and and San Antonio being um, interested in him and him turning down a little bit more money to uh, go back to the Clippers. But, you know, it it still was a relatively lukewarm at best market for Jermichael, despite how, you know, I I thought you could have made the case he was the third or fourth best guy in that Warriors series. Like, you know, that that adjustment of putting him in at the five, him defending KD, even though KD was going supernova, it's KD. I mean, there's only so much you could do and the Clippers had limited defensive personnel, but him checking KD on one end and draining threes as a pick and pop and spot up big on the other end, like that was huge in that series. And and you saw that in the seeding games, Um, you know, he had kind of struggled during the season, wasn't playing as much, wasn't closing games as much. But in the seeding games, he really found his rhythm again. And I, I thought was playing his best basketball of the season. And then with Montrez Harrell coming back and, and with Evita Zubots playing so well in that Dallas series, Michael kind of got squeezed again and, and just never really refound his role or his groove, even though, again, I agree with you. he, I think he should have been a much bigger part um, of, of the Denver series. But I, I, so I think you hope he opts in and, and doesn't opt out or, you know, test that player option. Uh, I think as of right now, I feel like he would. I think it makes sense. Um, I think he could get mid-level or just under mid-level. I think, I think he's played at that level. Uh, obviously, his counting stats aren't there, but I think if you actually look at, you know, three and D bigs, he's on that short list. I mean, he's now had, you know, really two and a half seasons of shooting the ball above 36%, you know, close to that 40% mark. Um, you know, really tough defender, versatile. Uh, you know, good rebounder, good locker room guy, good energy guy. Like, I, I think he can be the third big for a lot of teams in in the NBA right now. And you know, getting him at eight to ten million, I, I think that that's frankly a bargain. Although maybe not in this market. So, again, I think for the Clippers, I would try to re-sign Marcus. You, you hope Jermichael, uh, you know, stays. But if he opts out, you can try to re-sign him. I would let Trez walk. And then my final piece that we haven't discussed yet is I would try to trade Lou Williams. Um, yep. That's where I was is going on next. an expiring contract. Yeah. Expiring contract, making $8 million. It is hard to get the same value and, and talent, um, for him, I, I would say, but at this point, I, I really question the fit with Kawhi and PG. And unless Lou accepts a reduced role of like, Hey, you're playing 15 to 20 minutes. You're not closing games and you're just basically our microwave bench scorer at you know in the second quarter and like end of the third. Uh, I just don't see him being a good long term fit with Kawhi and PG. Uh, and then you know it's before even getting into the defensive issues, which teams are relentlessly going to target him uh, at the end of games. So, I, I would probably say my ideal Clippers offseason looks like keeping Morris, keeping Green letting Trez walk or sign and trading him trading Lou and then upgrading around the margins. I think they could use a new backup five. I think they could use a new backup point guard and a backup three and D wing uh, to provide some size behind Kawhi and PG.
1: And this team will be attractive to free agents uh, that are vets that are coming off of deals just because it's Los Angeles. They are definitely still a title contender. They still have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, uh, I would anticipate they're going to be in the market and will be legitimate players for all of the kind of guys that you're talking about. My, I, I don't even think that I'm with you that well, it's hard with Lou because the one thing that I think went kind of drastically underrated about this Clippers team this year, maybe under discussed, not underrated was that they were a very jump shot dependent team. There wasn't, a whole lot of guys on that roster that was, that were willing to just attack like Landry Shaman is a jump shooter. Patrick Beverly is a jump shooter. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, frankly, is a lot more comfortable jump shooting both from, uh, the perimeter and from the mid range. Paul George would happily pull up for threes with like a 50% three point rate. Right. Um, Montrezl Harrell is a pick and roller, but he's not really a creator going toward the basket. That's kind of the one thing that Lou Williams is that this team does need. They do need someone that can break down a defense and get into the paint. I think that that was probably what they were hoping Reggie Jackson could be, but Reggie is just not kind of good enough at the end of the day, uh, at this point of his career. So, maybe it involves keeping Lou my, and playing him. My only pushback
2: night, on, on your, but go ahead. I, I was just going to say my, my only pushback with Lou and, and you know, I, I, I try not to buy into the concept of, um, you know, guys, uh, I, I don't even want to say choking, but like underperforming in the postseason uh, under the pressure or the spotlight or um, just not living up to certain expectations. But I think we have a, a, enough of a sample size now. I mean, he, he is 33 years old. Uh, where if you look at year by year, every season Lou Williams has made the playoffs with the exception of last season, uh, which was a bit of an outlier with him as the go-to guy on, on that scrappy team. In uh, any other season where he's played with all-stars, you know, been the third, fourth, or fifth guy, he's really struggled in the, in the playoffs. And, and just kind of looking at, you know, Toronto, uh 12.8 points a game, 31% shooting. Uh, you know, that year in Houston, 12 points a game, 42% shooting. This season with the Clippers, 12.8 points a game, 42% shooting. And the three-point shooting has been even worse. Uh, he shot 23% on threes in the playoffs and, you know, I I just there's part of me that's like I just wonder how much of his game actually translates to the playoffs because um you know, and, and we, I think a guy he reminds me of is, is Jamal Crawford, who uh, w- was another guy who, if you looked at his regular season stats, especially those six man of the year um, years versus his postseason stats, there was always a drop off of four, five, six points. There was always a drop off of five to 10 percent shooting in the playoffs. And I just think those guys, you know, uh, C- Torrey Craig did a really good job on New Williams. Uh, Gary Harris did a really good job on New Williams. Like you can blanket him with a 6'4 to 6'7 guy who can just stick with him on the pick and roll and force him into tough shots. And, uh, you know, it got so bad in this series that um, over games 6 and 7, I, I think Lou missed five or six point-blank shots that weren't even that contested. You know, in game 7, he missed a wide-open layup. Like, yep. it was just kind of nuts to see him kind of disintegrate like that. So, while I, I agree with your premise, and I think in the regular season he did do that for them, it didn't translate to the postseason, And I feel like based on his previous postseason performance and his age at 33, going to be 34, I just have some concern longer term of just kind of him being that big of a piece on this team. Cause that's the other thing is that everyone said Lou is their locker room leader, more than Kawhi, more than PG, you know, just as much as Pat and to have him be a multi-time multi-time six man of the year, be the locker room leader, and then say, hey, you're going to play 15 to 20 minutes a night, you know, not necessarily close games and take a step back. I don't know if he would accept that. And, and I don't know how the locker room would take that. And, and that, I think, is another consideration with the yeah. Lou Trez dynamic is I think those guys are fine in limited roles. But I, I just don't know if given their their previous success with this team and, and their importance and, and what they've done in the past. I don't know if that's possible in L.A. with, with this Clippers team.
1: Well, and I don't even know that what you're saying is mutually exclusive to what I'm saying either. Like, I, I just think fair, they need fair. someone that can do that. Like, I'm I'm in favor of trading Lou Williams if they can find someone else who can be a creator going toward the basket. But they need someone who can consistently break down a defense and not do so to get to a step back or contested step back. Uh, they That's need fair. someone who can get all the way to the basket, especially if you're losing Harrell, who was useful at creating shots at the rim. So I'm in on trading Lou. Like, I think it's a reasonable, I think that everything you said is absolutely 100% right, but it still just creates another hole at the end of the day for the Clippers that they need to fill as well.
2: No, I, I I'm with you. I mean, th- this was an issue with this team and you know, what What I actually was kind of surprised by was that I, I felt You know, I wrote it in my notes uh, off of the first half of game seven was like, I thought they actually got a lot of good driving kicks in the first half. Like I I thought they were playing with a, a verve and a pace that they hadn't really played with consistently in the series, especially in those second halves of games five and six. But there's a lot of driving kicks into, you know, catch and shoot threes or, or, uh, you know, another driving kick. And like, I just thought they were moving the ball, especially that, that first unit um, you know, really well, and just you know, getting into the teeth of the, of the Nuggets' defense. And um, you know, I, I think we we talked about the Clippers' defense and, and them being unable to figure out how to you know combat the the Jokic Murray pick and roll. But frankly, I, I think we also should give some credit to Denver defensively. Of you know, this was the 15th ranked defense in the regular season. On paper, not necessarily a stopper. On you know, there wasn't really a stopper on this team. I mean, maybe. Jeremy Grant, Gary Harris, like, you know, good defenders, solid defenders above average, but I I wouldn't put them at that like all NBA elite level necessarily. I mean, maybe you disagree with that, but you know, on paper, and then you you have Murray who's not, he's improved as a defender, but isn't a stopper himself. You have Jokic who, you know, we we've seen when you can, you can attack him in the pick and roll and and finish at the rim on him. And they defended the hell out of the Clippers over the last few games of this series. And they, they packed the paint, You got to give Jokic credit. Game seven, uh, two blocks and three steals. And and that was a trend over the last few games. He was stripping guys on drives. He was blocking Zubats. He was blocking Trez. He was blocking Kawhi. Um, You know, I I think that might have been Jokic's best stretch defensively of his career. And, you know, Denver overall, just, you know, Jeremy Grant stuck with Kawhi Leonard. Uh, Gary Harris stuck with Paul George. Paul Millsap was big. Torrey Craig was big. Um, they, they helped off the shooters and the Clippers didn't have the playmaking to make them pay and their shooters went cold at the worst moment. So, um, you know, while part of it, I think, was just the Clippers personnel and, and how they attack and um, just their inability to finish or inability to drive, like part of it was Denver. I think Denver's defensive scheme worked really well. They, they packed the paint, made the Clippers pay. And, uh, you know, I think they deserve, again, you know, this has been the theme of this podcast. Denver deserves more credit than they're getting right now nationally, I think. Um, It's not just about the Clippers collapsing. It's also about Denver's, uh, I think, two-way ability that was pretty underrated all season.
1: I totally agree with you on Denver needing to get credit, especially defensively. I wrote that. uh, It was basically the first sentence in the thing that I I wrote was just like, look, they can look at defense as like a big reason why they were awesome having said that I think the Clippers make it easy on teams defensively these teams that like struggle a bit rotationally like so much of their offense is predicated upon like one singular action like you know a primary ball screen set for Kawhi Leonard so that he can get a mismatch and then get into a step back right like there are so many instances of this offense being elite while also being stagnant that for a team like Denver, where someone like Michael Porter jr. Tends to struggle with tagging on the backside of the pick and roll and then going out and recovering. They made it kind of easy on Michael Porter jr. To where he doesn't really need to think about where he needs to be rotationally. And I thought Porter was like fine defensively in this series. And mm-hmm. I don't know that it was because Porter has improved defensively, I think it was just kind of because the Clippers made it easy on him, you know?
2: Yeah, and and I, I think that, I mean, that was kind of the baffling thing for, for me was that, I, I you know, they didn't, they, they had moments. That there was a couple times where, where Marcus Morris or Paul George uh, attacked MPJ and, and kind of put him on his heels and, and got by him, but they, they never really exploited him. Um, and th- th- again, that you know, the Clippers, it felt like, Anytime they played a bad defender, Denver was able to exploit it. They'd they'd attack Lou, they'd attack Trez. They'd put them in complicated actions. Uh, On the Clippers' side, it was just kind of like, okay, we're going to go to Kawhi, we're going to go to PG, we're going to go to Lou, we're going to try to force-feed Trez inside. And it didn't really matter what the matchups were. It was more just like, this is what we're doing. And, and, you know, Doc had kind of talked about that all season of like, you know, we want teams to adjust to us. We want to dictate terms. You know, we don't want to, you know, they play the Rockets and the Rockets are going small. They stay big and they end up winning that game, blowing them out. But like, that was kind of the attitude of this team all season. And I think it kind of cost them in the playoffs where it was like, you have to have that balance of, yes, there are certain things that are non-negotiables that we will always do. We will always run. And we're not going to go away from that. It's not going to be you know, a a bunch of Marcus Morris post-ups just because they're putting a a guard on him because I'm (laughs) sure every team would love that. You know, Dallas did that a little bit of like putting a Seth Curry or a Trey Burke on on Marcus Morris, almost trying to goad the Clippers into isolating him, posting him up. Um, You you know, so sometimes you exploit that and then sometimes you go with your bread and butter. You go with a, a, you know, a, a Kawhi screen and roll. You go with a PG pin down, something like that. But they were just kind of so insistent on running you know, well, they don't even really have an offense, but that, again, just kind of running whatever they, they wanted to run and, and not really exploiting. Like, Denver had exploitable defenders. I mean, Mason Plumley they exploited him a little bit uh, with, with Trez in Game 7. Uh, Jokic could be, I mean, Jokic played better defensively, but he's not Rudy Gobert or Joel Embiid or, or even Brooke Lopez. Like, you, you could exploit Nikola Jokic. You, you know, you could, and that, that's where you actually saw that, I thought, in Game 7, going small, they stretched Jokic out uh, a couple times. Um, you know, I think Jermichael hit a three. Uh, uh, Kawhi had a nice drive. Like there were moments there where you're like, how do we done this more? Like this could have been a viable strategy because you, you can't help off Marcus Morris or Jermichael green. They're too good of shooters. And, you know, they didn't shoot that well in the series, but um, you know, I, I just felt like the Clippers had left so much on the table that there was so much more they could have done. And even in spite of that, their talent was such that they almost won the series anyway. And, you know, there's an alternate universe where they win this in five or six. And right now we're previewing Lakers Clippers. But, um, you know, just I I think some of the tactical stuff was was really just kind of mind boggling to see how much they didn't exploit, how much they didn't adjust or change, and how that ultimately was their downfall.
1: I think that's a great place to close on the Clippers, Yovan. Uh, Tell the people what you've got coming up.
2: Uh, So wrote on game seven, uh, we came up short. Clippers complete one of the worst collapses in NBA history. Uh, So you can check that out on The Athletic. I will have a piece on where the Clippers go from here, kind of dissecting some of the stuff we discussed with with Trez and Lou and and Marcus Morris. Um, And and then I'll have some more behind-the-scenes color of some of the dynamics in the regular season and and how some of that hurt the team in the postseason. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that.
1: <laughs> Thanks for joining, Jovan. Uh, keep it locked here. We'll be back in a minute with uh, an interview with potential first round pick Desmond Bain. Mm-hmm.
0: Hi, I'm Tas Mellis from No Dunks on The Athletic. As the great philosopher Brian of the Backstreet Boys once said, Everybody, yeah, hydrate your body. Yeah, everybody, hydrate your body right. Hydration's back, all right! We all know we have to stay hydrated. I've used an app, a big water bottle, post-it notes. And proper hydration is extremely important right now. It can really help your immune system. Believe it or not, dehydration occurs daily in 3 out of 4 people. With Liquid IV, you have the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. Each serving helps you get as much hydration as 2-3 to bottles of water. I like using Liquid IV when I hit that afternoon lull. Instead of grabbing a coffee, I grab one stick of the lemon lime, put it in my water, and I get the energy boost I need without dehydrating my body and getting dry mouth. It's win-win because it contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Oh, my mate Lily would love it. It's healthier than sugary sports drinks with no artificial flavors or preservatives and less sugar than an apple. Liquid IV is available nationwide at Costco and Target. Or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code ATHLETIC at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code ATHLETIC at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today at liquidiv.com, promo code ATHLETIC.
1: The last advertisement here is for a very, very special, special beer. Because if you ever feel like you always need to be on and you need a moment to chill, you need to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next. I know that I've been feeling that way over the course of the last couple of weeks. It's just been nonstop. But man, there's very few things better than just a cold Coors Light whenever you just need a minute to take a reset. Coors Light wants to give you a way to take a break from the new realities of endless video chats in 2020. Say goodbye to your video chat background and hello to that beautiful travel destination in real life where you can actually chill. Five lucky winners are going to get trips to the beautiful destinations they've been dreaming about for months To enter for a chance to win, visit coreslight.com slash outside during September and upload a screenshot of yourself in your ideal video chat background. The prize package is valid through June 2022, so winners can plan their trip whenever they feel comfortable. Uh, Look, I don't really use the video chat background. I use the white walls in my apartment. I would love, though, to get out and go to a beach right now. There's nothing I would like to do more. Even though I live in Los Angeles, uh, I would love nothing more than to be able to just go sit down on a beach, feel like I'm safe, and go out and just read a book on the beach. And I feel like I've not been able to do that for a while. Uh, Just enter for a chance to win to the beautiful destination of your choice at coreslight.com slash outside celebrate responsibly Coors brewing company, golden Colorado. There is no purchase necessary. Sweepstakes begin on August 27th, 2020, and they end on October 1st, 2020 it's open only to legal residents of the 50 U S States and Washington, DC. You got to be 21 or over Travel must be to the destination indicated in the entry and must be completed by June 30th, 2022 for official rules, including how to enter prize details and restrictions. Visit www.coorslight.com outside void where prohibited message and data rates may apply. Now back to the show. <laughs> All right, now on the show here we got Desmond Bain out of TCU. Desmond is a potential first-round pick uh, in the upcoming 2020 NBA draft. Uh, someone that, is, I think you'll kind of understand as we talk throughout this conversation, just one of the uh, one of the more fun players I've gotten a chance to talk to over the course of the last few years. One of the uh, just a just a good human being that is fun to talk to about this stuff. So, Desmond, how you doing, man?
3: Doing great, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: So I'm going to start this interview the way I do with every other NBA draft prospect that I have on the show. If you had to describe your game in your own words to NBA fans that are listening out there right now, how would you describe your game?
3: Um, I would say rock solid. I would say that, um, you know, that's a word that that you can use. I'm, I'm, I'm a smart player on both ends of the floor. Um, you know, I know what I'm what I'm good at and I know some of the things that I'm I'm not so good at. And, you know, when you you put me out on the floor with with multiple good players, um, you know, I feel like I kind of fit like a glove um, on both. It. So I would say rock solid is uh, is the word to describe me.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really great way to do it as well. You average 17 points, six rebounds, four assists this year. Uh, I would imagine that most people know you as kind of a three-point gunner given the fact that you've hit 43% of nearly 600 three-point attempts over the course of your collegiate career. So I think people can feel pretty confident about them getting someone who's not a goofball out there. Like you don't yes, really sir. you don't really fuck around on the court. You're not someone that's <laughs> trying to go above his... <laughs> above his station you're going to step out there you're going to knock down shots and you're going to just kind of provide what every NBA team's looking for
3: yes sir yes sir exactly
1: before we get into kind of dissecting the intricacies of your game though your journey to getting to this stage is really uh, like in a lot of ways it's remarkable man like first and foremost and It's really impressive and a testament to hard work and just kind of how mature you are as a person. So can you kind of explain what your upbringing was like for people? Because I would imagine most people don't really know.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I love telling the story. Um, You know, I get asked a lot given the fact that. Um, I was raised by my great-grandparents, so when I'm, you know, going around town and and things like that in a small town in Richmond, Indiana, everybody knows each other. So, you know, people, people come up to me and ask me a little bit about my story, and I love telling it, man. I mean... Um, you know, I was born in Richmond, Indiana. Um, my mother was 18 when she had me. So, you know, it's, it's a lot to bear um, as an 18-year-old having a child and things like that. And she just wasn't quite ready. And my dad um, really wasn't in the picture. I actually didn't even know who my dad was until I was 13 years old, um, just to give you a little backstory about it. But, um, you know, I moved in with my great-grandparents um, when I was two years old. And, uh, you know, it was great. It was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. Um, They put me in a private Catholic school in fourth grade. I went to public school before that. Um, You know, every time sixth grade rolled around, I was, grandma, please let me go back to the public school. She said, we'll see at the end of middle school. You know, we get to eighth grade. Grandma, please let me go back to public school, and you know she she ended up making me stick it out. Um, but you know, I feel like it was the best decision for me, just because of the the discipline and, and the values and things like that that I learned throughout. You know, my time there, um, you're held to a to a very high standard. You know, I graduated with only 20 kids in my in my high school class, so there's not a lot of room for error. I mean, you can't you can't really hide. So um, everybody's held to a certain level of accountability, but. As far as basketball goes, you know, I was kind of um, a small recruit. Um, I didn't get my first scholarship until um, the summer of my junior year, um, a Division II school called Hillsdale College. Um, and, you know, going into my senior year, I really wanted to be able to focus on, on the team and, and, and make a really good run. Um, so I wanted to get my decision out of the way, and I was going to commit to a, a school called Indiana Wesleyan, little NAIA school in Indiana, Division II. And um, you know, I got invited to this top eighty camp here in here in uh Indianapolis, Indiana. And um, you know, I played well. Uh Furman University, Ohio University came and watched me at Open Gym and, and they were kinda wondering, you know, why why do you not have any offers? Why, you know, what's where's where's the red flags? What's what's going on here? And um You know, they they ended up growing a liking to me and ended up offering me right before the deadline um, to sign going into my senior year that that early period. And they were really pushing for me to sign. And, uh, you know, I waited and waited. A couple more mid-major schools ended up offering me throughout the year. But, you know, ultimately I wanted to play at the Power Five level and get a chance to, you know, play against the best players. I feel like that's how you you grow the most is, you know, testing yourself and putting yourself in tough situations, going through adversity and things like that. And um, I waited and waited. Purdue was kind of talk, talking to me, since kind of talking to me. So I played AAU in the spring as a senior. Um you know and and I ended up getting a scholarship offer from t c u two weeks before graduation, so you know Jimmy Dixon had just got the job in April, and um, they offered me you know two weeks before I graduated about the middle of May, and I was down on campus by may thirty one and you know the rest is history, so Despite you being someone who was
1: relatively off the radar, uh, I think you would even say completely off the radar up until uh, the summer before the year, like, you played at TCU from the jump. Like, you were a a 20-minute-a-game guy, and you were a solid rotational player immediately and someone that provided real minutes. I mean, what was that adjustment like going from essentially small school Indiana basketball to – going to the Big 12 and having to go against these crazy athletes every night.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a crazy adjustment. Um, you know, I originally going into it, you know, I didn't think that I'd play until I was a junior or senior, you know, upperclassman, kind of have to pay my dues. And it just so happened that two guys had, had gotten in trouble and Coach Dixon was kind of trying to change the culture. So I got an opportunity early. And I think that's kind of where that rock solid mentality, you know, started just because I was a young kid out there. Um, like you said, it was a big jump. So, you know, I didn't make any mistakes. You know, I go out there play as hard as I can on both ends of the floor, knock down open shots and rebound, you know, don't give coach a reason to take me off the floor. And that, that was kind of my motto for, you know, my, my freshman year. And, you know, as I got older as a player, I started capable of and things like that. But, um, yeah, that was, that was kind of my motto early on.
1: And then that next year, you're the starting two guard on a team that goes straight to the NCAA tournament. I mean, you have Kenrich Williams, who's in the NBA now. You have Kwat Noi, who is also a, a draft prospect this year along with you. You've got Brodzianski, who I don't know where Brodzianski is right now, but he was, uh, he was a hell of a <laughs> college player at least
3: crazy dude is you know he's one of the nicest guys that i've ever been around and you know he really taught me how to work hard and and a, the right the right way to approach the and that dude flag can play so you step
1: into a role and you immediately become a top three scorer on the team you hit 46 percent of your threes at that point and that's where i start figuring out okay is this guy like a real prospect i have to watch him and i'm I think I ranked you somewhere in the bottom end of my top 100 at some point during your sophomore year, and you ended up declaring for the draft after your sophomore year. So, what has the process been like for you each of the years that you've declared for the draft? Because, uh, you know, sophomore year, you were a solid starter on a really good team. Junior year, things were probably a little bit different. And senior year, now you obviously are already in the draft, and you're coming off of a great uh, senior season where it seems like you really developed a lot of your skills. So what has that process been like, and how has it differed each of the three years that you've been eligible for the draft?
3: Um, I mean, it's it's always a a great process, you know, being able to to go different places and being around guys who have, you know, kind of been there and done that, learning learning from them, um, you know, I feel like that was kind of the biggest – the biggest thing that I could take away from from each of the years, um, you know, after my junior year, I really felt like I had a chance to to get in the league. Um, um, it was going to be an unconventional route or, or whatever it may be. But, you know, once I got around a lot of the pros and, and things like that, I understood how hard it really was to get in the league for one and how hard it was to stick in the league for two. Um, you know, Jeff Green is a guy. I'm not sure exactly what season he was in, but he was talking to us down there in Miami last year and was telling us what his goals were and how long he wanted to play. And he kept kept saying that, you know, he's getting older and there's always young guys coming in the league. So, um, you know, you have to every day and be dedicated to your craft and, and to your dreams if you really want to make a career out of this. And, um, you know, at the back end of my sophomore year and my junior year is when I really started focusing in all areas of my craft and my diet and you know my sleep and and everything in order to become the best player i could and i feel like um you know that's why i'm in the position i am now and and over those you know times testing the waters and coming out um was huge for my development um you know both on and off the court
1: on the court though your game really took a big leap uh, from your junior to your senior year, it seemed like you became a lot more comfortable on the ball as opposed to earlier in your career. You were more of an off ball player. How did that development come about over the course of that uh, pr- over the course of the previous summer?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I knew it was something that I was going to have to implement in my game, just given, um, you know, the our roster. Um, You know, early on, I played with great guards, Jalen Fisher, Alex Robinson, guys who were really good at, you know, getting in the lane and creating opportunities for for our team. And, you know, with those guys being gone, I knew that some of the responsibility was going to be given to me. And um, you know it—it it was a lot of film. Um, I mean, I, I worked on my ball skills and things like that, but majority of it was film. You know, so when I get in a pick and roll or or whatever situation may be, I I know where the defense is rotating from and and what type of you know where everybody's going to be at on the on the defensive side of the ball, and that kind of made things easier and slowed everything down for me. And once I, I got that and everything slowed down for me, the game became a lot easier while playing with the ball in my hands. So we've kind of danced around it a couple times
1: now, but while the ball skills have improved and while you've become a lot more comfortable uh, you know, attacking closeouts and playing in pick and rolls, the thing that's ultimately going to make your career is your jump shot, right? Like I said no earlier, question. you've hit 43% of your threes over the course of your collegiate career. But it is kind of an unconventional looking jump shot <laughs> in, compare, in comparison to other guys across uh, the NBA. So how did you kind of develop those mechanics over the course of your development?
3: And that's, that's the crazy thing. I was never really, um, you know, taught how to shoot. Um, you know, and I, I got to TCU and, and Ryan Miller, um, was the assistant that had brought me in and he never really mentioned anything to me about my form just besides, you know, stop dipping the ball little things here and there. Um, but he really just told me reps, you know, if you want to become a great shooter, it's going to take a lot of time in the gym. And I really bought into that. And I feel like that's where, um you know my improvements came but yeah I was never tired I used to my shot used to look way worse it still doesn't look great but it used to look way worse
1: (laughs) well it's just funny because like you know on some level some scouts think differently about this right like yeah yeah some some guys are just like the results are what matter right (laughs) yeah for sure three percent like on a high volume that's what matters. Some yeah. other scouts are like, well, how's it going to look when he moves back to <laughs> like, Yeah. Have you, how much of that have you heard from scouts over the course of the last two years that you've entered the draft?
3: Um, so I haven't heard too much. Um, you know, I feel like it's been more like people look at me and they see my arms are short, so they don't know if I'm yeah. going to be able to get my shots off and things like that. And that's part of the reason why I took the dip out of my shot and became a better shooter off the move and off the dribble just to kind of diversify myself a little bit. Um, but I actually think my short arms are the reason why I can shoot the ball so well It's just because, you know, I don't have all that extra motion in my shot. Um, it may look funky or it may look whatever, but, um, you know, I don't have the extra motion in my shot, and I've practiced it so many times. Um, is the reason I became the shooter I am.
1: Yeah, you have a very quick release, and I would imagine that the short arms kind of play a little, yeah. little into that just because there's yeah. no there's no extension going on. Like, it's just it's coming out real quick. <laughs> yeah. The place where I talk to scouts that worry about the short arms is on defense, just contesting yeah. shots. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. because what, you're listed at six six. Do you think yeah. you're six six or more like 6'5"? Yeah.
3: Um, I mean, I I've been measured at six six. My coach Coach Miller always gives me a hard time and says I'm six five, but I don't know if he's <laughs> doing that just to joke around or or what, but um the last few times I've been measured, I've been measured at six six with my shoes on. So
1: you have something
3: in the range of, let's say, what, like a 6'4 a half wingspan? Yeah, it's probably accurate.
1: So how have you adjusted defensively to having that shorter wingspan specifically in regard to contesting uh, other players' jump shots whenever they try to hit you with a step back or try to mm-hmm. you know, uh, drive you and try to go through you, although that's pretty difficult too?
3: Yeah, no question. My um, my coach Miller told me, um, you know, after my sophomore year and when we really started talking about the NBA, is, um, guys are going to look at you, scouts are going to look at you, and automatically say, you know, well, he's got short arms, can he guard? So, um, you know, to to reject that narrative, you have to play that much harder. Your attention to detail has to be that much better. And you know, I've been blessed with with the frame that I have and the strength that I have, and that. That helps me, you know, guard different positions and things like that, making guys uncomfortable with with my size and things like that. But um, yeah, I think it really just comes down to effort and um, you know attention to detail. Yeah, and
1: lateral quickness, you're great. You have that like strong frame because what, like you're 215, 220 yeah. pounds, something like yes, that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And it's hard to go through you. Like some of the guys that struggle in the NBA are guys that. You know, bigger players can just get them in a switch and blow through them, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like not to, like, I'm not going to call him out, like, you know, negatively necessarily, but like the Nuggets throughout the course of the playoffs specifically tried to target Lou Williams, right? Yeah. Because Lou yep. Williams is just smaller, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're someone that at six foot five, six foot six, you know, something in that range. 220 pounds it's just hard to go through like you're someone that i think teams are going to struggle to attack in switches at least and i think yeah. that's almost the most important part given the no way the question is going
3: yeah no question i mean the nba is it's versatile now you see guys like grant williams um you know and stronger guys like that switching up and down lineup being able to guard bigger guys and smaller guys and i feel like it's you know due mostly to to his strength
1: who are some of the guys that you've talked to um you know be it younger guys in the nba you know vets kind of like jeff green that came and spoke to you guys this offseason you know who are some of the guys that uh, you've talked to that have really given you some good advice
3: and the thing is I, i was just talking to this guy named scotty today i can't i can't remember his last name he played at tennessee but I like learning a lot from the guys who, um, you know, Sonny have been Johnson, in the, probably. Yeah, that's exactly who it is, yeah. but I like, I like, um, talking to the guys that have been in the NBA or had a cup of tea in the NBA and then got out of the NBA. I want to know, you know, what's the reason why they feel like they didn't stick? What's the reason why, you know, they've had to play on four or six, however many different teams. So. Uh, Michael Beasley's been down here working out and, you know, obviously he's had quite the career and quite the experience so I've been able to learn, you know, some of the things, I wouldn't necessarily say not to do, but um, you know, some some things that you want to stay away from and now he's, you know, trying to uh, fix his um, reputation and things like that and get a chance to get back in the NBA. But, you know, Bam Adebayo's been down here. He's a great guy, um, you know, on and off the court with the way he approaches the game, um, you know, and how mature and, and how he go, goes about things. So I've been able to learn a lot from him. Um, you know, there's been a, a lot of pro guys down here that I've been able to soak up knowledge from.
1: What's the biggest lesson you've taken away from some of those guys on the fringes of the league?
3: Um, you know, Scotty was talking a little bit about today and he was saying that, you know, if you're one of those fringe guys, you know, you definitely got to have your head on straight. He was saying, you know, it's it's like a corporation, like you're you're going to work every day. And are you making guys, you know, happy about coming into work? Or are you sucking life out of the team? Um, those type things, you know, I'm I'm gonna be one of those guys that's gonna be in early, um, you know, every day and leave late. Um, be a guy with a smile on my face. You know, I I have that reputation throughout all of TCU, um, you know, and dating back to high school and things like that. And that's just kind of who I am. And uh, you know, I feel like if you if you can do those things, you know, work your butt off, um, be a guy that's you know happy to play the game, happy to be a good teammate, whatever your role may be um, you know, you'll have an opportunity to stick around for a while. So
1: one thing I wanted to ask you about is your, uh, you've had a pretty close to home deal with, uh, COVID. Isn't that that right? Yes, sir. Uh, Would you mind kind of explaining that and, you know, kind of discussing it?
3: Are you talking about with my grandfather or just in, in general?
1: Your grandfather yeah um, yeah your, yeah did your grandmother contract yeah, it as well
3: but yeah both of them so it's it's been crazy you know um people ask me all the time how are you keeping your head head on and this that and whatever but i ha- i have a great family you know i i went back to indiana and we're we're just one big you know rock we lean on each other um my grandpa yeah he contracted the virus in early july and his health had just kind of been depreciating um you know anyways um the last time that I had went home I was telling my homeboy that was over here on the balcony you know my grandpa's lived a great life um you know I'm really proud to have been raised by him and you know who knows how much longer he has and then right after that he had contracted covid and on the flip side my grandma had got it as well and she went into the deal with um you know, already having lung issues and for her to, to get, to get out of it and be at home. She's at home now and doing all types of stuff, walking around. She's, she's stubborn. She, she has to uh, have like, whatever, a couple liters of oxygen, but I mean, just to be alive and be able to share a few more moments with her is, you know, means the world to me. It means the world to, to my family.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, this virus is very real. Uh, yeah, you people that, you know, aren't willing to wear masks. Like it's just crazy to me. Like- it really
3: is. I mean, I, I think it, I think it takes an experience like that for you to, to really understand for you to contract it. Cause early on when COVID was going around, you know, I was taking all the necessary precautions and things, but I was asking my, do you know anybody that has it? Do you, you know, and, and until it really hits close to home, um, you know, it's it kind of one of those things that was on the news, kind of like the swine flu and things like that. But um, you know, I mean, it's it's real, and and everybody needs to you know do all they can to to slow it down. Yeah. Another thing I kind of want to ask you about is you know Richmond, the town you
1: grew up in. You know, I, I believe it's it's like four out of five people are white, right? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, what was growing up as a person of color like in that environment? And how is, uh, you know, all of the all of the many racial injustice issues that have hit the news over the course of the last three months from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor? I mean, uh, how did that hit you, given what your life experience has been?
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's been hard and, you know, I've I've had to look myself in the mirror and look some of the, you know, people that I was spending some time with, um, you know, at home in the mirror and ask them what their views were and what their stances were, just because a lot of people, um, you know, will claim to be your friend and claim to, you know, want have your back in all instances and um, you know things like like the killings and and everything go on and we're asking you know this this is all of us together whether you're white black blue orange like we all got to fight this together Um, you know and the fact that, that some of the people that I grew up with and and spent a lot of time with aren't you know on the same side as I am you know it's it's concerning and all you can do is really you know help them see the the clear picture and help them to understand what we're up against and educate them on the history of why things are how they are today um you know I mean I went to Seton Catholic where there were three black kids in the school you know I was one of them and then my homeboy uh you know was playing basketball currently at IU Kokomo and his sister you know and and the rest of the kids were white so um you know it's it's uh it's a different dynamic but um you know, I mean I'm I'm blessed to be able to go through that and, and see both sides of it for sure. All
1: right, the final three questions here are gonna be a little bit more fun than okay. having to talk about uh, issues like this. So let's uh let's go with the first one here. Basketball's back on, but I'd imagine that throughout the course of the pandemic, you've had some time to catch up on shows or catch up on movies that you might have missed. You know, what have you seen uh, that caught your eye over the course of the last, I guess we're going on eight months now, seven months now? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, I've been watching a lot of, um, I watch all the smoke. I watch quite a bit of that. Um, you know, just to get the real inside scoop on, um, you know, what NBA players deal with day to day and what goes on in in the locker room and things that you can't necessarily see. Um, you know, I like watching that. Um, uh, Eric Thomas came and spoke at, uh, at TCU earlier this year. Um, and I've kind of continued to follow, um, you know, his message and, and things like that um, along this journey. And then my homeboy and I have been, um, you know, I've, I grew up Catholic, went to a Catholic school and things like that. But, um, you know, we've really been committed to reading this this book called The Competitor's Bible. Um, and it's a Bible where, you know, the front half of it is the Bible, has Old and New Testament in it. And then um you know the back of it has like a daily devotion um every day and, and we read it and it's it's uh you know it's geared towards athletes the back half of it is geared towards athletes um and how we can apply um our spiritual life on and translate it you know onto the court or field or whatever it may be and um you know it's been good to be able to diversify a little bit and um you know, really focus on areas that, you know, we haven't necessarily not been able to focus on, but haven't spent the necessary quality or necessary amount of time on um, just because other things could have been occupying our minds. So, you know, COVID and the lockdown and everything has kind of helped me take a step back and and really realize the things that are that are important to me outside of basketball.
1: Man, you are uh, you are very motivated and geared towards improving yourself.
3: Yeah, man, I, I am. A lot of people, you know, are going to be hopefully celebrating, um, you know, come draft night. But to me, I mean, that's only really just the beginning. You know, I I, I want to be one of those guys that that really sticks around and continues to improve and improve better, um, you know, not only as a basketball player, but as a man and hopefully have a family and, and be a good husband and, and things like that down the road. So the second question I've got for you here is who
1: is the best player that you played in college basketball over your four years at TCU?
3: Um, Trey Young, probably. Um, you no, know, with the, with the freedom and and things like that that he had at, at Oklahoma, um, you know, it was tough. Especially when he when he gets it going, I I was guarding. The first time we played them, I didn't guard them at all in the first half. This is my sophomore year. Second half, I was tasked with guarding them, and I did a good job the first eight minutes, and, and then they started just setting flat ball screens. Pretty much right across half court, and he's just navigating them however he wants. And you know, Trey plays real low to the ground, and you know, good with the ball, can split um, floaters, you know, lobs to the big. He had shooters all around him. Um, he was he was a tough cover. He was he was good. He's smart too. He's smart. He he knows the game. He's he's a good player.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing with him is a he knows exactly how to get to his spot because his handles yeah. so tight, and because yeah, it works so great, and he's so smart. But he's I think his passing is his best skill like everyone I think so
3: shooting, too but it's <laughs> yeah. unbelievable. It's, it really is I mean you you you're late on a rotation okay it's the ball's already gone and like he he gets off it so fast on his live dribble um both into a shot and when he's passing the ball like you said it's credit to his handles and how tight they are but um yeah he you can tell he spends a lot of time on his game he's a good player
1: how would you go about defending Trey Young now that you kind of maybe know a little bit more than you did two years ago?
3: Yeah, I mean, really get physical with him. I mean, you uh, that's that's one thing that I have to my advantage, um, you know, with him. In the NBA, you can't get too physical with guys, at least, you know, with your hands and, and things like that. But, um, you know, just try not to let him get comfortable because once he gets comfortable and he can size you up and – um, you know, you get space, he's, he's going to do what he does. I mean, he's I'm pretty sure he's an all-star, and for a reason.
1: The last question here is somewhere here you're going to end up with some money. You're going to, you know, first round, second round, I'd be stunned if you didn't end up with a guaranteed deal. So you're going to get a pretty solid paycheck here in this first year of your career. What is the first thing that you want to buy with that paycheck? <sighs>
3: a good question um i mean probably uh just put down the the rent for wherever i'm gonna be (laughs) staying i guess um i really don't a lot of people ask me that what are you gonna get what do you i'm not um you know really a big spender like that um a lot of guys in the league are into fashion and things like that and you know i don't go out in no raggedy clothes for sure but um you know i'm not gonna go out and blow my money on sure on yeah on stuff like that so probably probably the rent first month's rent that deposit on the house whatever it is
1: (laughs) i love that that's fantastic desmond bain thank you for coming on the show this has been the game theory podcast please remember rate review subscribe do whatever you can to support the show we'll be back next week until next time we'll talk soon bye